You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. How do the blessings of a Jewish Messiah run to those who are not Jewish? That's the question that we're going to take on today as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. And today we're going to look at a very difficult passage that we find in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 31. If you've got a Bible, please turn there. And in today's passage, we're going to consider three points. First, we're going to see the historic distinction and hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Second, we're going to see that the coming of Christ has inaugurated a new principle, that the salvific blessings of God flow to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And third, we're going to see that God now extends grace to all who believe in equal proportion regardless of their ethnicity. So, we're going to be in Matthew 15. We're going to begin right now with our first point, and that is that there is a historic distinction and ancient hostility between Jews and Gentiles. If you've got your Bible open, look at verse 21, and we read these words. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, last week, Jesus was in uh, Gennesaret, and there he was opposed by a group of scribes and Pharisees who had been sent to attack him from the religious capital, from Jerusalem. And Jesus dealt with these guys, and he exposed them as hypocrites, and he sent them packing. But now that exchange has concluded, and we're told that Jesus withdrew. Jesus apparently anticipated that if he remained in that area, things were about to get quite intense, and it was not yet the right time to force the issue with the religious elites in Jerusalem. So he left the area, and he went in a very surprising direction. He went north. He went away from Jerusalem and all the hostility. He went away from his old stomping grounds in Galilee, and he went into Gentile territory. Jesus went to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon were very ancient cities. They were already 3,000 years old by the time Jesus went there. And Tyre was about 25 miles northwest of Galilee, and Sidon was a further 25 miles up the road. So this is a pretty big trip. And, you know, if you spent a lot of time over the years reading your Bible, you've probably heard of these cities of Tyre and Sidon before, because they do appear somewhat frequently in the Scripture, mainly in the Old Testament. And usually, when Tyre or Sidon are mentioned in the Old Testament, they are described in very negative terms. These were cities infamous for evil and idolatry. In the Old Testament, Tyre is often condemned for its pride and its uh, hostility towards Israel. And Sidon was the hometown of Queen Jezebel, and it was a center of Baal worship. And because of this reputation for evil, Back in chapter 11 of this book, Jesus pointed to Tyre and Sidon, and he said they're an example of those who will face eternal condemnation. So it's kind of surprising to see Jesus head right in that direction, heading right at the historic enemies of God's people. But as he heads in this direction, Matthew now introduces another person in the story. Look at verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman. 
If Tyre and evil, or if Tyre and Sidon were evil in the Old Testament, the Canaanites were even worse. In the Old Testament, the Canaanites are like the epitome of wickedness. They were the indigenous population of the promised land. And Leviticus 18 tells us about their culture. The Canaanites burned their children to death in sacrifice to a demonic idol called Moloch. They reveled in all manner of sexual deviance. They practiced the occult. And the Canaanites were so wicked that God told the Israelites, when you conquer the promised land, here's what you're to do. Deuteronomy 7 verse 2. When the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall show no mercy to them. In the whole Bible, the Canaanites are the only people that God commands Israel to wage this kind of holy war upon because that's how wicked the Canaanites were. But the Israelites thought they had a better idea than listening to God. So in the book of Judges, when they take the promised land, instead of destroying the Canaanites, they marry the Canaanites. They keep them around. And we see throughout the book of Judges that this led to centuries of ruin and judgment because they, they were misled by the Canaanites into idolatry and all manner of sin. And so here is yet another historic enemy of the people of God, the Canaanites. So here in Matthew 15, we find Jesus heading into the territory of Israel's historic enemies, and he has an encounter with the representative of another society that was a historic enemy of Israel. Matthew is going out of his way to show us there's a lot of historical baggage surrounding this situation and surrounding this woman that Jesus is about to speak to. The baggage of the historic hostility between Israel and her Gentile neighbors. And this hostility was born out of two things. First was God's election of the nation of Israel. Reading again from Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. Of all the nations on earth, God chose Israel for himself. And not only did God set Israel apart from the rest of the nations, but he purposed to work through Israel to bless all the other nations. And because of God's unique relationship with Israel, God called Israel to live in a particular, separate way that was distinct from how every other nation lived. Exodus 19, verse 5, God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, the covenant God is talking about there is the law of Moses. God required Israel, as his unique special people, to obey the Old Testament law. And it was this law that became the second source of enmity between Israel and the nations. The law is what Paul calls in Ephesians 2 the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Because what happened was, over time, eventually the Gentiles began hating the Jews. Because the Jews lived in this unique, peculiar way, in line with their law, and the Gentiles didn't understand it. And eventually the Jews began hating the Gentiles, because the Gentiles did not live in line with God's law. 
And this mutual hatred was a terrible thing. Friends, racism is satanic. It is iniquity. And while God did want Israel to remain separate and holy unto himself, he wanted Israel to be a beacon of light in the darkness, summoning other nations to come and learn about the true God. But Israel wasn't interested in that. Instead, they developed a self-righteousness, lifting themselves up while looking down on the rest of the world. And as they indulged in this heinous sin of racism, by the time of the first century, by the, by the days of Jesus, the, there was a general slur that Jews used against Gentiles. They called them dogs, unclean. So there was this terrible ethnic hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles that ran in both directions. But while God did not desire this ethnic hatred between Jew and Gentile, we must remember that in his Old Testament economy, God did intend for there to be a distinction between Israel and the other nations. God intended Israel to enjoy unique blessings that the other nations did not have. Romans 9 verse 4 says, To the Israelites belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Historically, Israel enjoyed a really unique set of privileges that came from their unique position before God. And Jesus summarized it like this to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. He says, salvation is from the Jews. Now, that is not to say that every ethnic Israelite was saved. They weren't. Paul was clear about this in Romans 9. Not all who are descended from Israel are truly belonging to Israel. Salvation was never simply a question of ethnic descent. No. Salvation in every age is by God's grace alone through faith alone. But in God's Old Testament economy, he was working through Israel exclusively. For a Gentile to draw near to God necessarily meant that they had to draw near to Israel. Because if they did not, they remained in their terrible natural position, which Paul describes in Ephesians 2.11. You Gentiles were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, that's a terrible description, isn't it? Having no hope and being without God, that's the condition of the Gentiles in the Old Testament, apart from drawing near to Israel. And yet, while that was true for the Gentiles, the Jews enjoyed this great position of blessing and divine favor. That distinction God did intend, even if he did not intend the hatred that accompanied it. But we come now to our second point, and here we see that the coming of Christ leads to a massive change in the way that God works in the world. Because now a new principle is instituted. Now the blessings of God are going to flow to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. Look at verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So again, we've got this Canaanite woman who lived near Tyre and Sidon, and she comes out seeking Jesus. Now, we might be surprised that a Gentile from this northern region beyond the historical boundaries of Israel would be interested in Jesus. And yet, both Mark and Luke tell us that people from Tyre and Sidon had previously ventured south and joined in the large crowds that followed Jesus around Galilee. So the fame of Jesus had grown even beyond the historical outline of the nation of Israel. 
Jesus was known in Tyre and Sidon, and this woman has also heard about him. So when she hears that Jesus has come into her region and is nearby, that's an opportunity she cannot miss because she has a great need for Jesus' help. Her daughter is being oppressed by a demon. We find this verb about being oppressed by a demon in Matthew. Often it's accompanied by language talking about people uh, being afflicted by the supernatural forces of darkness with terrible physical pain and torment. And I think that's the case here too because this woman says that her daughter isn't just oppressed, she's severely oppressed. This woman is terribly distressed by her daughter's plight. She wants to help her daughter but she has no way of doing so until she hears that Jesus is close by. And because he is, she leaves her daughter behind and goes out to find him because she's convinced that Jesus can help her. And as she approaches Jesus, she cries out to him. She explains her urgent need. And she also says two other things. She says, Jesus, have mercy on me. Help me. And second, she addresses him using the phrase, Lord, Son of David. Now, this is important. Twice before in this book, we find this expression, Son of David, chapter 9 and chapter 12. And on both occasions, we see that this is a title for the Messiah, the long-promised, unique king of Israel, the greatest, uh, the greatest hope of the nation of Israel. Back in 2 Samuel 7, God spoke to David, Israel's greatest king, and God swore an oath to David that your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. God said that David's dynasty would never end. And D.A. Carson has pointed out there's only two ways for that prophecy to come true. Either there's got to be endless father-to-son succession, or someday you've got to have a king who rules forever. And God later clarified which of these two options he meant in the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. To us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. God's intention was that David's dynasty should endure forever because it will culminate in an everlasting king, a man who will rule forever, and that is the Messiah. And that Messiah will usher in a glorious, righteous, endless kingdom. That's what it meant to be the son of David, that you were this figure of prophecy. And that's how this Canaanite woman addresses Jesus when she encounters him. Now, for a Gentile woman who lived a considerable distance from Jewish territory. She seems to know a lot about Jewish religious expectations and the biblical promises made to David. And she seems to have a great deal of spiritual insight in understanding that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. This is quite a declaration from anybody in the first century. And it's even more surprising that it comes from this Canaanite. Surely a cry like this will attract Jesus' attention. Surely it will cause him to immediately respond, right? After all, back in chapter 9, we read that two blind men followed Jesus and they were crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. The same cry. And immediately Jesus turned aside and healed them. Now this woman cries the same thing. And she doesn't only cry at once. In Greek, the verbal tense here denotes ongoing action. She is crying again and again, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. What happens? Verse 23, 
But he did not answer her a word. Why not? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us. But I think we can figure it out from the context. The explanation is this. Here is a Gentile woman appealing to Jesus on the basis of a distinctly Jewish hope and promise. Because make no mistake, the hope of the Messiah was a uniquely Jewish hope. It was a promise made by Yahweh who had covenanted with Israel, who says in Amos 3, you only have I known of all the nations of the earth. It was a promise given through Israelite prophets, given to Israelite people about the future of the Israelite kingship. What does any of this have to do with a Canaanite woman? We just read in Ephesians 2 that during this period of history, the Gentiles were alienated from Israel and not participants in the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that means exactly what it says. So for this Gentile woman to appeal to Jesus on the basis that he is the son of David makes no sense. She's claiming a promise that doesn't run to her and that doesn't benefit her. She's making a request related to covenants to which she is not a party. She is on the outside looking in. So Jesus doesn't answer her. But Jesus' silence is not the end of the story. Because even though he does not answer her initial plea, she persists and continues to cry out for Jesus' mercy and help. To the point that we see this in verse 23. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. The disciples were getting annoyed by her persistent pleas. And they come up with a solution. And this is a solution they'd come up with before. You might remember when Jesus fed the 5,000, what was their solution to the problem? Send them away. We don't know how to feed them. Here, here's a woman that's annoying us. Same solution. Send her away. The disciples are quick to want to be rid of people and their inconvenient demands. So they say to Jesus, get rid of her. Now, based on the answer that Jesus gives them, I think what they're actually urging Jesus to do here is to grant her request. Give her the miracle that she seeks so we can be rid of her. After all, in all the time they've been with Jesus, the disciples have never yet seen Jesus refuse somebody that came to him with a sincere need. Why should this be any different? Well, there is a reason that this is different, and Jesus tells them what it is. Look at verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus has a profound awareness that he's on a mission, that he has been sent. The Father has sent him into this world to accomplish something. And what's more, Jesus' mission has certain parameters. He has been sent to a particular group of people. You know, Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. All of humanity is lost sheep. But the mission the Father has sent Jesus on here is primarily a mission that goes to one group of, of lost sheep. Right? Jesus has not been sent here to the lost sheep of ancient Egypt or ancient Greece or ancient Rome or ancient China. No, he's been sent to the Jews who have been drifting far from God, languishing under evil political and religious leaders. They are sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus has come to fulfill God's promises to them. Paul says in Romans 15, 8, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. That's the issue. Jesus came with a particular calling and focus upon the Jews to fulfill all of those messianic promises that God had given them. And Jesus has made this point before in Matthew's gospel. Back in chapter 10, when he sent the disciples on their missionary journey, he said, don't go among the Gentiles, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
The ministry of Jesus and his disciples had a particular focus on Israel. And that's what the disciples have forgotten when they urge Jesus to just go solve this woman's problem so we don't have to listen to her anymore. See, unlike Jesus, they're not thinking about their mission. They're just reacting. And that's a lot easier than thinking, right? She's annoying us. Send her away. But the disciples' mental inattentiveness won't do because Jesus is about to do something really important. So he wants the disciples to wake up. He wants them to pay attention to this. So he points them very clearly to what the issue is. He says, you guys need to think about the historic ethnic distinction between Jews and Gentiles. When the disciples urge Jesus to grant her request to be rid of her, they're not thinking about that issue at all. It's like they've forgotten that they aren't in Jewish territory anymore. They've forgotten that they aren't around Jews anymore. They have forgotten that there were these vast, theologically significant distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. And they've forgotten the particularity of their own ministry. But they've forgotten some other things too. Because Jesus' statement, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, should have provoked some questions for them. Because even though the promise of the Messiah is a promise made to Israel through Israelite prophets about the royal dynasty of Israel, the Old Testament also indicated that God ultimately had good purposes not just for Israel, but for all the nations. God told Abraham in Genesis 22, In your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And Isaiah made it clear that God's good purposes for all the nations would be accomplished by the Messiah. Isaiah 42, God says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I will give you as a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring from the prison those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 49, 6, It is too light a thing that you, the Messiah, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. See, God's purpose for his Messiah began with the Jews, but it doesn't end there. God's good purpose was also for the Messiah to extend God's light and deliverance and hope and salvation throughout all nations. Yes, Romans 15 says, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to confirm the promises. But the next verse says, he also came in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The scriptures were clear. God had good purposes for the Gentiles that ran through his Messiah too. And this is a theme in Matthew. And we see this theme all the way up to the end of the book. When Jesus says to his disciples, here's what your mission is now. Not just to go to Israel, but to go into every nation. That's our mission, right? But the disciples aren't thinking about their mission like we often don't think about ours. In fact, the disciples don't seem to be thinking about much at all. They have forgotten what the scripture said about the Messiah and his ministry to the nations. More than that, they've also forgotten things that they themselves had seen from Jesus' earlier ministry. Because in the past, Jesus has already helped a number of Gentiles. Back in chapter 4, Jesus healed people who came to him from Gentile areas. In chapter 8, he cast demons out of two Gentile men. In chapter 8 also, he healed the servant of a Roman centurion who expressed tremendous faith in Jesus. If Jesus had been sent only to, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, why had he helped the Gentiles in the past? See, I think verse 24 here is, is Jesus making a statement that is an invitation to get the disciples to pay attention 
to this historical ethnic division between Jews and Gentiles. And I think that it is a calculated statement to make them think and ask questions about what Jesus is up to, about how his mission intersects with the scriptures, about why he has helped Gentiles in the past. But the disciples don't pick up on any of this. Instead, they just sit silently. But the silence doesn't last very long. Look at verse 25. But she, the woman, came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Now the woman catches up to Jesus and his disciples, and she throws herself at Jesus' feet. And again, she asks for his help. And she honors Jesus with this profound title of respect, Lord. But this time she doesn't call him son of David. This time she drops the messianic language. And now Jesus speaks to her. Verse 26, and he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is a stunning reply. Over the last several weeks, we've seen over and over again the compassion of Jesus. And yet this reply seems to be anything but compassionate. And his reply here builds on what he's just said to the disciples, that he's been sent only to the Jews. And so in this metaphor, the Jews are the children and the Gentiles are the dogs. And the logic of his reply runs like this. You don't deprive your kids of what ought to be theirs by diverting it elsewhere. You don't give the dinner that you cook your kids and, and throw it to the dogs, right? You give it to your kids. So in the same way, Jesus says, I'm not going to take the blessings that ought to go to the Jews and divert them to the Gentiles. Now, Jesus' response here has unsettled believers over the years because it just seems so harsh, particularly when we think about the historic hostility in first century Judaism, how people called Gentiles dogs. But I want to be clear here, friends. Jesus is no racist. Jesus is without sin. And Jesus has demonstrated that he is no racist, first of all, by going into Gentile territory. The Pharisees aren't going to do that. They would have been afraid that they were going to get unclean if they did that. But Jesus rejected that whole approach to uncleanness we saw last week. No, Jesus went into Gentile territory. He is not bought into the racism of his day. And beyond that, as I showed you a minute ago, Jesus has already been very kind to many Gentiles, and he's about to be even kinder to them. So Jesus here is not engaging in some kind of racist, anti-Gentile hostility. No, rather, I think we should understand Jesus to be doing two things here. First, by making this startling statement, he is drawing the woman's attention to the extraordinary nature of her request. He is forcing her for a moment to really consider her request in light of these historic distinctions between Jew and Gentile. He's forcing her to recognize that she is a Gentile, that she's a Canaanite even, and she's seeking God's grace from the Jewish Messiah. From a historical perspective, it's shocking, and he wants her to see it. Just like in verse 24, he wanted the disciples to, to see it, to see these, uh, th this discussion in the context of these larger historical trends. And Jesus wants everyone in this scenario to pay attention to this Jew-Gentile distinction because he's about to do something really significant to that distinction. So he draws her attention to it. That's the first thing he does. But I think the second thing Jesus is doing here is he is testing her faith. Sometimes God tests our faith. And the Bible tells us there are many reasons for this. To grow us, to develop in us uh, spiritual steadfastness. But one of the reasons also is this, in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, God says that he tested Israel to know what was in their heart. Now, the issue isn't that God didn't know the answer already. Of course, he knows what's in our heart. But sometimes God tests us 
to cause us to outwardly reveal the genuineness of what's going on inside of us, to reveal outwardly what's in our heart. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. This woman has come with a request, with a prayer. And Jesus puts her in a situation in which the reality of her faith is going to be publicly revealed by putting obstacles in front of her, by ignoring her at first, then giving her this shocking line to put her off about children and dogs. He is forcing her to respond because how she responds will demonstrate the reality of her faith in Jesus. So Jesus gives her this stunning reply. How will she respond? Look at verse 27. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Her reply is absolutely astonishing. It's astonishing for three reasons. First, she continues to show great respect for Jesus. The obstacles Jesus has set before her have not deterred her at all. She doesn't storm off angrily. She doesn't say, well, you know, we Gentiles think some things about you Jews too, right? She doesn't do any of that. Now, once more, she calls Jesus Lord. In fact, if you notice, every time she speaks in this passage, she calls Jesus Lord. She still reveres him, even though her attempt to get him to answer her prayer has proved a lot more difficult than she would have hoped. Second, her response is astonishing because she says that she agrees with Jesus after he gives her this difficult statement about the children and the dogs. There's a really interesting contrast to this coming up in chapter 16. Because in chapter 16, Jesus is going to give another very difficult statement, this time to the disciples. He's going to say, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And when he tells them that, Peter's immediate response is, No, Lord! But here, Jesus gives this woman a very, very hard statement, and the first words out of her mouth are, yes, Lord. She trusts Jesus, even though he says something that she probably doesn't want to hear. And what she's saying here is she recognizes that Jesus is right. His primary ministry here is to Israel. He is the Jew's Messiah, after all. And she recognizes that she is not a Jew, and she does not have that claim on Jesus that she previously tried to press. She sees that she cannot claim uh, access to Jesus on the basis of the covenants or the promises that the Jews had. But third, her response is astonishing because she works with what Jesus says and uses it as a basis to renew her appeal. She grapples with the idea that the disciples have failed to grapple with, which is how can the Messiah, who is sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, ultimately bless all nations. And the answer that she comes up with is this. The blessings of the Messiah are not a zero-sum game. The logic of the statement in verse 26 runs like this. The food that goes to the children should not be diverted to the dogs. The blessings that should go to Israel should not be diverted to the Gentiles. But she detects in this that that logic sounds like it presupposes a limited quantity of blessings. That if the food goes to the dog, that reduces the available food for the children. Or if the blessing goes to the Gentile, that denudes the benefits that should have run to Israel. But the woman now proposes a different take on Jesus' metaphor of the children and the dogs. She says, yes, the children should be fed first. But as they eat, the food would have scraps that would fall to the dogs. In other words, the dogs have a place too. And when the dogs eat... They're not taking food out of the children's mouths. The children have already been fed. 
But there's lots of food to go around, lots of leftovers for the dogs to enjoy. And in the same way then, yes, the Jews should be the primary focus of Jesus' ministry and blessings. But surely Jesus has enough grace and mercy and power, not only to satisfy all of Israel's needs, but also to give some leftovers for the Gentiles too. So she reasons, if Jesus helps me, I'm not diverting anything from the Jews. That's the logic of her appeal. And Jesus loves it. This is what he built the whole scenario to elicit this declaration. Verse 28, then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus has tested her faith, and it has proven to be robust. You know, only twice in this whole book does Jesus positively comment on someone's belief. And both times he commends Gentiles who come to him seeking shocking miracles. The centurion in chapter 8 and this woman here. And on both occasions, after commending their faith, Jesus simply says a word where he is standing and somebody a far way off is instantaneously healed. So her request is granted. Now, that's a lot. And there's a lot of theology I've dropped on you guys today. What should we take from this? I think there's a practical application here and a further theological application here. Let's start with the practical application. Friends, we need to persist in prayer when we have desperate needs. This woman was not deterred, right? She came seeking help from Jesus, and she just keeps praying, even though her prayers don't seem to get the answer she wants. And when it seems like Jesus' answer is going to be no, her response is she pleads her case. And notice, she does it respectfully. She still honors Jesus. She still trusts Jesus' wisdom. She indicates that she submits to his will. But she still explains why she thinks her receiving her prayer is consistent with Jesus' will. That's not a bad thing to do. That's not disrespectful. Jesus commends her approach to the situation as an expression of great faith. So, friends, we must pray persistently. Tell God what you want, and more than that, tell him why you want it and why you think it's in line with his will. There's nothing wrong with pleading your petition before Jesus, so long as we do it humbly, remembering who he is and who we are. But second, this is a really important moment in salvation history. Because while Jesus has previously helped Gentiles in this book, this time he does it in this extraordinary context. It's Gentile territory. He has drawn everyone in the scenario's attention to the fact that there is this ethnic bridge or barrier between them, between Jew and Gentile. And with that background, he, the Jewish Messiah, blesses this Gentile Canaanite. We really get the sense that here a page is turning in the economy of God. Whereas before Jesus could tell the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews, the repository of truth is to be found only in Israel, now a new principle emerges, a principle that is going to apply not just to the healings in this chapter, but it's a principle that's ultimately going to apply to God's ultimate blessing of salvation. And the principle is this, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's the principle. God's blessing runs to the Jew first, but it also runs to the Gentile. And that principle first emerges from this conversation that we just read about. 
And Jesus teaches his disciples this principle not by sitting down and explaining it. No, Jesus sets the principle before them by putting this Canaanite woman through this test to bring her to the point where she is the one who correctly articulates the principle. It's an astonishing thing. And she's reasoned it out correctly. She has reasoned out what God intended the whole time. God's favor and blessing will indeed be first offered to the Jews. Yes, Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yes, there is a distinctly Jewish emphasis in Jesus' first coming and the ministry of his disciples. And yet, while the Jews are benefited first, they are not benefited exclusively. There's more than enough blessing to go around. And the Gentiles get to receive the blessings of God and his Christ now directly as well, without having to draw near to Israel. But the Gentiles are blessed only secondly, only after the Jews. But, and this is very important, while the Jews enjoy a temporal priority, while they are benefited first, there is no other remaining sense in which they enjoy an advantage over the Gentiles. It's not like the Jews get the good blessings and the Gentiles get the mediocre blessings. No, there are no more ethnic divisions in Christ. What God gives the Gentiles through his Christ is not a reduction, it is not a diminution, it is a full portion. And that's what we see now in our last point. A God who extends grace to all who believe in equal proportion regardless of ethnicity. Look at verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. So now he leaves Tyre and Sidon and he returns to the area around the, the lake. But where exactly does he go? Matthew doesn't offer specifics, but Mark does in Mark 7.31. Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now this is interesting because when we read what Matthew says, we might think that Jesus is just going back to his old stomping grounds in Capernaum and, and all of that on the western side, the Jewish side of the lake. But Mark says, no, 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 Jesus doesn't go back to the western Jewish side of the lake. He goes to the communities on the eastern side of the lake, which were part of the region of the Decapolis, which was Gentile territory. So we learn here that just like when he went to Tyre and Sidon, Jesus is still moving amongst the Gentiles. Now, Jesus has been this way once before, back in chapter 8. And the last time Jesus was in the Decapolis, we read these words in verse uh, 28 of chapter 8. Two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And on that occasion, Jesus showed great kindness to the Gentile people of the Decapolis. He showed kindness by liberating these two demonized men from their oppression. And by doing so, he also showed kindness to a nearby town which had been menaced by these demonized men. You'd think the townspeople would be grateful that Jesus has solved their problem. But they weren't. They were terrified by Jesus' power. And so the townsfolk came out and they made a big crowd. And they came to Jesus and said, hey, please leave. And Jesus obliged them and he left. But as he got in the boat to leave, one of the two men he had set free from the demons approached him. And this man demonstrated gratitude and loyalty. Mark chapter 5 verse 18 says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with Jesus. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. 
This one guy simply talked to his friends about Jesus. He talked in his community about Jesus. He talked to anybody who would listen about Jesus, and it made a big impact. And we see that now in chapter 15. Because as Jesus returns to the Decapolis, he receives a very different reception than he got the last time he was there. Chapter 15, verse 30 of Matthew says, And great crowds came to him. But this time the crowds don't come to kick Jesus out. This time they come to Jesus wanting him to stay and help them. See, that one man's testimony made a really big impact. And I want to point this out because it's easy for us to forget it. It's easy for us to imagine that we cannot have a positive impact in our community for Jesus today because we seem so small and the world around us seems so big. But friends, it's not true. This one guy just talked over and over and over about what Jesus had done for him and it totally changed his community for Jesus. And look what the result was in chapter 15, verse 30. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet. It's a familiar scene, right? A huge crowd gathers around Jesus, wanting to access his power. We've seen this many times in this book before, except previously the crowds were always Jewish. But what previously has been happening only among the Jews is now happening also among the Gentiles. And this large crowd is filled with people who are desperate for a miracle. The, the blind, the mute, the lame, those who could not walk, the crippled, the Greek word here speaks of anybody who's not able-bodied. Many came under their own power. Others had to be brought by their friends and were laid at Jesus' feet. What's going to happen here? Is Jesus going to say, well, you're a bunch of unclean dogs. I'm not going to help you. No. Is he going to say, I've only come to help the lost sheep of the house of Israel? No. Is he going to banter with them back and forth like he did with the Canaanite woman? No. That was a unique occurrence, an object lesson for her and the disciples. And that lesson has been learned. God's grace is not only for the Jew. It is for the Jew first, but it's also for the Gentiles. And it is for the Gentiles in full. No, what Jesus does here is he compassionately heals this massive crowd of Gentiles. Verse 30, and he healed them so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. Friends, the power of Jesus is limitless. There is no problem in this life that can stop the power of Jesus. And Jesus transforms these people's lives who have these incurable conditions. And the crowd is astonished. And what's the response? Verse 31, they glorify the God of Israel. These pagan Gentiles have encountered Jesus. And what happens? What they see compels them to praise the one and only living and true God. Now, what should we take from these verses? There's two things I want you to notice. First, I want you to see how similar these miracles are to the miracles Jesus performed earlier in this book. In chapters 9 and 12, Jesus healed the blind. In chapter 11, he says he healed the lame. In chapters 9 and 12, he healed the mute. And in chapter 8, he healed a paralyzed man, a man who had been brought by his friends, just like what's described here, and laid down at Jesus' feet. Friends, these similarities are not coincidental. Matthew's highlighting them. He wants us to see that everything that Jesus was willing to do for the Jews, he is willing to do for the Gentiles. There is no ethnic distinction or restriction upon the grace and power of Jesus. But the second thing I want you to notice here is that the illnesses that Matthew draws attention to are blindness and muteness and lameness. And that's very interesting because that calls to mind an important messianic prophecy. 
Isaiah 35 speaks of the Messianic age, a time when the deserts will blossom, when God's people will be delivered. And in those days we read, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. These miracles, which Isaiah says are signs of the Messianic age, are the same miracles that Jesus has been performing. But now he performs these miracles for a Gentile crowd. See, earlier when the Canaanite woman came to Jesus and said, Son of David, he didn't answer her because she's a Gentile. What's the son of David have to do with a Gentile? But now we see things are changing indeed. The hope of the Messiah is not only for Israel. The Messiah indeed comes to bless all the nations, just like God told Abraham long ago. So overwhelmingly, what we should take here is this. The era of total ethnic distinction that characterized the Old Testament has ended. Every person can access every blessing of God through Jesus Christ alone. And even here in Matthew 15, this truth is still only just beginning to dawn. This is just a preview of what is to come. But the fullness of this truth is going to be realized. Because Paul says in Ephesians 2, Now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Gentiles who were once hopeless and without God in this world have hope now because Jesus Christ has died and is risen. And Jesus' death has opened the door for the full and equal inclusions of, of the Gentiles in the people of God without their first having to become Jewish or be circumcised or keep the law. Paul says this in Ephesians 2.14. He himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." In the death of Jesus, the old era has ended. In the death of Jesus, the dividing wall of hostility, the old covenant consisting of the Mosaic law has come crashing down. And afterwards, at Pentecost, a new era began. A new people was formed. One new people made up of believing Jews and Gentiles alike, brought together because of our common share in Jesus, our common participation in his death. So now it can be said in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Friends, our society talks a lot today about wanting to end racism and ethnic hostility. Friends, there is only one solution to that sin, and it is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Only the cross breaks the power of the flesh and its wicked hatred. Only the cross has the ability to humble and level us all because of our recognition that we each and all are guilty and that we all deserve God's wrath, that we cannot improve our situation on our own. It tells us the truth that we must cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ, the God-man who has died and, and, and is risen. Only the cross of Christ can bring us together. The cross was God's solution to, the, to end the era of the ethnic distinction between Jew and Gentile. And it was God's solution to end the wicked hatred that people manufactured as a result of that distinction. And friends, the cross can end 
our ethnic hostilities to. Friends, I would say to you, if you know in your heart this is something that you struggle with, with, with uh, ethnic hostility, I call upon you to repent. The power of Jesus at the cross can change your thinking about that. Friends, the world and its wisdom cannot end this sin, but Jesus can. Friends, the cross shows us what our sin deserves, and it shows us the saving power of Christ. Christ died to free us from the penalty of sin and to free us from the power of sin. Christ died to redeem for himself a people for his own possession. Romans 10 says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who will call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I know I, there was a lot of theology and, and historical background this morning, but what I want us to take from, from this sermon is this to conclude, friends. The times have changed. We live in a new era. Praise God for that. Yes, the Old Testament was marked by deliberate ethnic distinctions, but Christ has brought forth a new principle. God's blessings flow to all who repentantly believe in Jesus Christ, first to the Jew, but also fully to the Gentile. And in Jesus, we can find the fullness and overwhelming grace of Christ. And I'm not just talking here about the ability to, to seek healing like the people in our passage did. Friends, Jesus offers us a healing, which is what we really need, right? And that is what we talked about last week. We need a new heart. We need to be made new. And Jesus offers us that. He offers us a position, a new position before God. He offers us indwelling with his spirit. He offers us adoption into his own family. And to access these things, we don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to keep the Jewish law. We don't need to act more Jewish. No, we need to simply draw near to Jesus, and we need to cast ourselves upon his mercy. Today, if you have never come to Jesus, I pray that you would do so. And if you do know Jesus, then I urge you, to be like the Gentiles in our passage who experienced the transformative power of Christ and then they gave glory to God. And friends, we need to do that too because Ephesians 3 says the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel.